0: Okay. Good morning, Boker Tov. We have our uh, new time now, by popular demand. Tuesday mornings at nine o'clock, and um, we're going to do our usual, um, our usual overview of the parsha and then begin to dissect some sukkim uh, specifically inside. So, overview of Parshas Rei. We have the schuz of reading Parshas Rei this Shabbos. Parshas Rei begins, of course, with the great statement of B'chira Chafshes, the axiom of our faith of free will. That we determine our destiny. Of course, it's a kaddish It's God. We discussed last uh, Shabbos in the Drosha The Drosha Saran around the beginning of the tenth Drosha Who is it? Kochiv Otsum yadi, or is it or is it of uh, hayom? Do we choose, or does a kaddish choose? And of course, the Duran was medayik that it's, uh, You have to remember. The koach l'asos doesn't say, remember, Hashem gives you chayel, he gives you wealth. He gives you koach lasos chayel. Hashem endows us with ability and capability, and how we use them is up to us. So here too, Moshe refers in the beginning of the parsha, Kashbuch places before us a life, a lifestyle of bracha and kloa. And whether we we'll engage it or not, the choice is ours. Pasha continues with the sanctity of the land. We're going to enter the land. The land is holy, and the uh, relationship with the land. We can't be like the other nations of the land. We have to destroy their pillars and idolatrous places of worship, and so on and so forth. There's a uh, the halacha of private altars. We're not allowed to do kol beinav. We can't do everything what they, everyone what they want. You can't have a barbecue altar in your backyard and offer a korban the way you want. But there's going to be a centralized offering, centralized ritual, centralized practice. The halacha then about eating uh, consecrated foods only in Yerushalayim. not do it after Yeah, but until the Beit HaMiktosh was set up. They had bambas. This is all discussion. And then we're going to get to Arab Sukkot which deal with the halacha, the permission to eat meat in general. It's what we're going to analyze a little more closely this morning. General principles of halacha. A reminder, Shmur V'Shamata. And we'll discuss that as well this morning. The uh, specifics of what did the Torah mean? Shemar v'shamata. That safeguard and listen. Shouldn't you say the opposite? Listen and safeguard. And then you're not allowed to learn from the Canaanim. The obligation is when entering the land of Eretz Yisrael, you have to rid the land of the Canaanim. Rather than absorbing or copying their practices, we're supposed to rid ourselves. Does that mean that you have to destroy them? Allah and writes, you give them three options. They could leave... They could stay in Eretz Yisrael but observe the Shevah Mitzvah B'nai Noach or we kill them. Those are the three options. Is it instructive for today? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the Torah then delineates, Torah then delineates uh, three threats to the Jewish people. The first is a Navi Sheker, someone who is a false prophet. We had an interesting discussion two Shabbos ago, the false prophet in terms of Bar Kochva, Bar Koziva, even Rabbi Akiva fell prey to believe that he might be Mashiach and he first presented himself as a Navi he fulfilled the criteria of a Navi and then they, they smelled as Medrash says in Medrash Eicha that he was not uh, proper and ultimately he was killed it's a who killed him? Well, was it the Romans? was it the Jews? the Jews caused him to be killed but in any case the threat of the Navi Sheker the second is the Mezizu Mediyah the one who threatens by enticing us to go astray who seduces us and tries to uh, recruit us to a life of idolatry and the third is the Ir Nidachas. And Ir Nidachas is an entire city that worships idols. All three threaten the Jewish, the fabric of Jewish life, threaten our. Faithful lifestyles. And the Torah tells us how to get rid of them: the navi sheker, the Meses Umeidiyach, and the irni dachas. The Torah that tells us, atem The beginning of Parak we are children to Hashem, and because we're children, we analyzed this last year or two years ago. Because we're children to Hashem, los is code to do. Therefore, we have to have a certain respect for our body and the way that we mourn death. think we saw Mepharshim beautifully. Because we're children to Hashem, we realize the soul is immortal. And with death, death is only from our perspective tragic. From the perspective of the soul, death is actually ecstasy. It returns to its creator. So don't mourn excessively by carving your skin because to mourn excessively is to deny the world to come, is to deny the immortality of the soul. One should mourn because from our perspective it's painful. But to mourn excessively by to mourn excessively would be to imply that the soul does not have a world to come, the soul does not have a future and then of course we have uh, the halachas of kashrus, different foods we have maizr sheni, the tithe we have the halachas of shmita and the cancellation of loans we have the halacha of Taking care of the poor person, the indigent, we have to be careful. And the parsha ends with the Sholosh Ragolam and the obligation of Aliyah Alaregal, the obligation of going up to Yerushalayim for the Shalosh Regolam. So it's an action-packed parsha, it's a long parsha, but we are going to spend our time this morning analyzing Parakid Bays, Pasuk, beginning Pasuk Parak Parakud Bays. Pasuk Chav, chapter 12, verse 20, in the stone of page 1004, at the very top. Why are we starting in the middle of a parak, you may ask? We've mentioned many times that the Prakim were established by Christian editors for the purposes of the disputations. In the Middle Ages, when the Christian uh, clergy would challenge rabbis to disputations and to public debates in order to try to prove the, their way of life, that the verses support their theology. So in order to e- more easily reference verses, they assigned chapters to them. We don't, we use those chapters. Rabbi Salabaitchik was careful not to call it a parak, he called it a capitol, a chapter. He didn't want to give value to their... Their assignment of chapters, we use it, but the real way to understand the break in the theme of Sukkim of the Torah is to look for the psukos and the Stumos. Look where there's a break in the text when you have a space, and here you have a space. Perikybeis pasuk You have that space, which tells us from the Torah perspective there's a natural break in the in the pasuk, and therefore it's a good place to begin. Says the Torah. So what's going to happen? Until now, there's a halacha: you're not allowed to eat meat. You could, if you if you crave meat the only way that you could eat meat is if it's consecrated meat. You have to go to the Mishkan and you have to offer a karbon. And only when you offer the karbon do you have access to eating meat. Says the Torah, when you come into Eretz Israel and you will expand your borders, Hashem will expand the borders, namely when you come into Israel, Moshe is talking to them as they're about to go into Israel, and you'll expand your borders so uh, there's permission given to be able to eat uh, meat even if it's not the result of a korban even if it's what we call chulun, even if it's meat that is shechted properly and you barbecue in your backyard, so the passage says when Hashem, uh, your God will broaden your boundary as He told you He will, and you'll say I'm tempted, I have a taiva I want to eat meat, you know a desire for meat, to your heart's desire you're allowed to eat meat, says the Torah according to all of your desire you're allowed to eat meat. It's interesting, the archival translates to your heart's desire. But that's not what the Pasik says. It's a vast nafshecha. Nafshecha, nefesh, is not a heart. Soul desires. Nefesh is not a heart, it's a soul. It's the animal soul. The neshama is the human soul. The nefesh is the animal soul. Pasik says when your animal soul will crave meat, you're allowed to eat meat. You see, it's not, the, it's not the godly soul that craves the meat. It's the animal soul that craves the meat. So the Torah here permits shechitah It allows for uh, eating mundane meat or unconsecrated meat. Rashi tells us what's going on here. Rashi says, "Kiachiv, kiachiv, lim the tora derech heretz shelo yisave adam lach ol baser elamitoch rachva rachvas yadayim vaoshir." Pesach is alluding homiletically, says Rashi, "Kiachiv" to expand. So Rashi says. Homiletically, the pasuk is alluding, teaching us derecheretz. When does taiva arrive? When does desire, temptation, when does it arise? When you expand, when you get wealthy, when you have access to money, when you expand your, your, your lifestyle, that's when you want even more. So that's what the Torah is warning us about. That with yarchiv, with expanding your lifestyle, comes the risk of temptation and desire. But it says, In the desert, they were not allowed to just simply shecht meat whenever they craved a good steak, whenever they craved a nice a good piece of chicken. They were only allowed to eat it when it was offered as a sacrifice. Um, a korban shlomim was offered, the meat of the karban is eaten by the individual who brings it, so then you were able to have meat. But other than that, you didn't have access. So now Moshe is telling the people, when you'll come into Israel, uh, then uh, Then a Karish will allow you to eat the meat. Says Possil, uh, Possil, Pasuk, Pasuk just continue for a moment. Ki achak, Mimcha, Makama, Shevra, Shem, Laka, Lassumishimasham, Vizavachta, Mikorcham, Mitson, Hashan, Hashan, Lach, Lacha, Kashet, Sivisika, Viachal to Bisharek, Bolavas, No Shecha. So the Possil says. If the place where Hashem will choose to place His name is far from you. In other words, you dwell, you live far away from the Beis Hamikdash, So you can't just, when you want meat, offer a korban Shlomim and have access to meat. So what can you do? You can slaughter from your cattle and your flock that Hashem has given you. I have commanded you. You can eat in the city to your heart's desire. So if you live somewhere far from the Mishkan, from the Beis Mikdash, you don't have access to eat, bring a korban Shlomim every time you want meat. So here the Torah permits shchit HaSchulan. This is the Torah permitting eating meat, even when it wasn't offered in the context of Says, right now, the Mishkan is traveling among all the Jewish people. You're hungry for meat? No problem. Come to the Mishkan and offer a korban. What's going to happen, though, when you go into Israel and you live many, many hours or days' journey from there? So here the Torah permits eating privately. Rashi says here we have the origin of the halachas of shechita it says here if you crave meat how can you eat it? V'zavachta interestingly V'zavachta is the same word as zevach or zvachim what's a zevach? it's a sacrifice but we're talking about shrita's chulin. We're talking about secular. We're not talking about sacrifice. The whole point of this verse is to tell you, even when it's not in the context of a sacrifice, but you crave meat, you can do it privately in your backyard. Shecht an animal, a cow, and then drain the blood, and then off, and then put it on your barbecue. But Rashi nevertheless notes that you have a tzivoy of zvicha. Nevertheless, you have the similar obligation. Just like when it comes to korbanos, you have to shecht. So too, when you want to eat it privately, you have to shecht. What are the laws of shechita? B'zavachta it says you have, to she, you have to offer it as a korabon. Shecht it like I commanded you. Where did God command us how to shecht? So Rashi quotes the Gemara in Chul Chavches. This is incredible. If I ask you where in the Torah, point to the chapter and verse where it teaches me the laws of Shechita. There are five primary laws of Shechita. I'm not allowed to saw. There can't be sawing action. I can't press. The knife has to glide. The knife has to have no nicks. I have to check the knife. Shochtim would, would grow their fingernail long. Not the fingernail, by the way, of their thumb that has a, that has a pulse, but of their forefinger, of their pinky. that doesn't have a pulse. To be able to glide it along, along the knife to make sure that there's no nick. There's five laws. There's five laws of Shrita. Show me. Where does it say in the Torah the laws of Shechita? I can't eat animals unless they were s- uh, slaughtered properly. And where do I know the laws of slaughter? Lacham no. Lashem It's Torah Shabbat it's Torah Shabbat Absolute, 100% Torah Shabbat Keeping kosher is an affirmation in the belief of subscribing to the laws of Of uh, Torah Shabbat Says the Ramban An incredible statement here Look at the Ramban Pasuk Chaf Alef What's the alacha of Shekita? An animal has two human beings Who are part of the animal kingdom We have two pipes in our throat We have the esophagus And we have the trachea We have the wind pipe And we have the food pipe so when it comes to the shechita of poultry, the obligation is you have to slice the majority of one of the two simanim, and it's considered kosher. When it comes to a behema, a large animal, you have to slice a majority of both of the simanim. Vida says the Ramban, Balashana Kodish, who karas ha'tzavar. What does the word shechita mean in Hebrew? The etymology of the word shechita is a reference to what's kares. Cutting off, it means cutting, slicing, the simane hatzavar, the symbols of the neck, that which connects the head to the body, that which binds the brain to the human body, the esophagus and the trachea. The b'avur she'amar b'yishchatein, b'midbar, ki hi'im molitza, she'zevach usam kitson. V'nei tziva b'krabaros v'shachat v'shachatu, she'hu b'simane hatzavar. It's interesting, when it comes to korbonos, we find the language shechita being used. And when it comes to shechita schulan, the permission to be able to eat meat even not for the purpose of consecration, we find the word zevach being used. So it's a reverse note to the Ramban. We use the word shechita to refer to every time you want meat. And we use the word zevach to refer to a korbon. And yet the Torah reverses it. Why? He named it's Hila, Tsivashi, comma, shame, ochlem, shlamm, them shrutem, amar, Lomar, bechoma com, or vavaches, says the Ramban an incredible concept the reason our shechita when we're going to eat meat privately parallels the laws of shechita of when you offer a korban is to tell us that when we eat meat it has an element of being a korban. That our shechita, even for the purpose of private meat, even for our barbecue in our backyard, modeled after and parallels the korbanos of the Beis HaMiktash. In other words, we shouldn't think religious life was in the Beis HaMiktash. When I eat the meat of a korban shlamim, when is it consecrated, sacred and holy? That's when I offered it as a sacrifice in the temple. But When I have a tailgating party outside of Dolphin Stadium, when I eat a barbecue in my backyard to celebrate Father's Day, that's mundane, that's secular, that's not imbued with any religious experience or meaning, says the Ramban, no. It's called zevach. It's called Shechita because it's the same principle. It's a parallel experience that even when I'm not near the Beis HaMinktash, and this was true both when there was a Beis HaMinktash, but you lived far away from it. When there was a Beis HaMinktash, you lived far away from it. Or now when there's no Beis HaMinktash, right? The we show off the Gemara says. What do we do now that we have no Beis miktash Our Shulchan modeled after the Mizbeach, Right? How do you achieve kapara? Kapara? Our shulchan is modeled after the mizbeach, and when we have salt on the table, it's in commemoration of the bris melach, the salt of the karbonos, and so on and so forth. So you see that that's true even for the meat. When you sit down to have a good piece of flesh, you're not just having flesh they're having something holy as if the the attitude towards it can be like a korban. And that's what the Ramban draws. So this is the Makor. This verse is the origin of the fact that when we eat meat, It requires Shechita and the parallel of the words of Shechita and Shechita's Chulan. And Shechita's Kodshim reminds us that as Jews, even when we eat meat that's not in the context of a korban, nevertheless, bless you, it's a religious experience and contains, it's imbued the potential for religious growth. Interestingly, there's a very interesting law in the laws of Shechita. Not only directly related to our Pesach, but I want to mention to you anyway. The, 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 this morning's parsha gives us license to slaughter and eat meat even outside of the framework of sacrifices and the Beis Amintosh. Now, normally when it comes to Jewish law normally when it comes to Jewish law if we want to testify to the veracity and the truthfulness of an event or someone's status, what do we need? Witnesses. two witnesses you need two them. If I want to testify to the veracity that something occurred the way it did, or to endow status upon someone—be it in kedushin, be it a get—if we want to testify someone owes money or sold their land, or the obligation is binding. They saw the new moon. The Jewish people are going to observe yontif. It requires testimony. To change status requires testimony, and yet shchita is very unusual. Despite the complexity and the intricacies of the laws of Shechitah, we don't require two witnesses. We don't require two witnesses. Here I have an animal which is unkosher, walking around, I can't eat it. If I am if I'm, eat it while it's walking around, it's Avermanachai. Menachai. And a Shochid who's hiding in a closet with no one around him can shek the animal and hand present the animal to us and say, it's kosher. And we accept his word without, without there being two witnesses to testify. In fact, this is the source of our principle that we imply today in our kitchens. Why is it today in our kitchens? You come home, and your wife made you dinner. Or a woman comes home, and her husband made her dinner. How do you know it's kosher? There aren't two witnesses to testify that everything's kosher, all the ingredients, and that it was cooked properly, and so on and so forth. What happened to needing two Eidim? So we have a principle, Eid Echad, Ne'eman Surum. Then when it comes to the category of isurim, of religious law, in contrast to monetary or status, one witness is all that you need. Eid echad bi bi'isurim. Where do you learn that from? How do you know Eid echad Bi bi'isurim? So Rashi in his commentary on the Gemara in Chulan, Daf Yud Ahmed Bez, tells us that this implicit trust, the idea that when it comes to religious life, I don't need two witnesses. I need two witnesses when it comes to monetary or status like marriage. But when it comes to religious life, like my kitchen, eight Echad, one witness is good enough. It's implicit from our Pasuk. What is Rashi, right? Let me tell you Rashi, Masechus Kulim. The imagery is magnificent. Rashi writes, All the Kohanim who partake of the Korban do so relying on the one who shechted. They implicitly trust and rely on His Word. In other words, a Jew's implicit integrity is enough for us. No witnesses or observers are necessary. So imagine, Shechita is an incredibly sensitive mitzvah. Others depend on the shochet and His Word. True, you bring the, the chicken, you bring the animal to a possek who looks, who inspects certain aspects of it. But how do you know that the shochet didn't saw? How do you know he didn't press? How do you know that his knife was smooth? There are things only the shochet could know. At the moment of confrontation with the animal, only the shochet knows if he slaughtered the animal according to the halacha. Only the shochet knows for sure, and the halacha trusts the shochet. And that implicit notion of integrity and trustworthiness, trustworthiness is codified in the halacha. We have a halacha in the beginning of day of Hilcha shchita, rov shchita him. There's a chazaka, an established assumption, that the majority of those who engage in shechita are trustworthy, are honorable, and are faithful. And that was the practice for centuries. It's only very recently we have this concept of hashkocha, of third-party supervision of kashras. Right? You all know better than I do, that, that for centuries the shocher of the community had the confidence of the community. The butcher didn't have a supervision, he didn't have mashkiach, he unlocked and he locked his own shop, he wasn't suspect. But the halacha goes even further. That the integrity of the Shochit is the model of every Jew in other situations. That we're believed in our kitchens because Eid Echad Ne'man Be'isur is, is derived from the Shochit. Now, why did it change? What happened to the Shochit's trust? What happened to our faith in the butcher? So that's a tragic story actually of the Jewish people. And it's a tragic story that we've become untrustworthy. The Gemara has a principle when it comes to Arayos. When it comes to... Um, Promiscuity, ain't apetropas la raius. Nobody is trustworthy. It's the temptation is so strong, it's so great, Ain't apetropas. Nobody is trustworthy. I was just having we had an ORB meeting last week for hours, uh, always reviewing our protocols and procedures. Milchik restaurant, a fleishik restaurant. Do we need a mashgiach tamed? Do we not not need a mashgiach tamed? Do we need a tzmidi? To what if the if the balabayas is a shomer Shabbos? Does it make a difference? And I advocated for the position today: ein apetropos lakashrus. After the scandal in Muncie of the Frumayid who was serving non-kosher chickens to people, if you recall, and after essentially the scandals that come out almost every other day, the temptation and the the, the challenge, the financial temptation to an owner to substitute non-kosher for kosher is so great: ein apetropos lakashrus. So what happened to the implicit Trustworthiness of, uh, of the Shochit from our Pasuk Tragically we've learned So it's still there in theory But in practice we have to put safeguards Because tragically to a great degree It's been, it's been lost But it's fascinating from our Pasuk we see this Implicit trustworthiness of a Yid When do you need to aid him? A monetary dispute Or a raios Or um, to confer status But for religious life the Yerashamayim, the implicit religious life, Eid on bi isurim, and we see that from here the way Rashi the imagery Rashi provides of the Kohen, who in the Beis Mingtesh would would gratefully and gladly eat. And in the eating is trusting his fellow Kohen, his colleague, who did the Shita. It's very, very beautiful. Okay, Vaiter. Yes, got the as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Vaiter. Uh Says the Pasuk, even as the deer and the heart are eaten, you can eat it. The contaminated one and the pure one may eat it together. Contaminated one and the pure one may eat it together. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the slaughter to that of animals that are ineligible for use as carbonos. Right? These animals, a deer, is not offered ever as a korban. So you're allowed to uh, use it for personal use, just as it's ineligible for a korban. One may have thought that if the Beis is too far, still, you need to ha- create a private altar. Krill, you need to create a private Mizbeach. That's what the Ramban writes here on this Pasuk. Look at the Ramban. Uh, Pasuk of Beis. The Ramban writes here, in other words, I might have thought that when I don't live, when I don't have access to the base, I make dash to the Mishkan, so I have to create a private bama, a private altar. And that's the only way I can have access to meat. So says the Torah, even animals which are ineligible to be brought as offerings, I can eat, not an abama. As long as I do a proper shechita, I can eat them and I have access to them. Azayzak the Ramban. That's how Ramban understands what's going on here in the Pasuk. Pasuk Chav Gimel, continuing. Rachazak level ti ki adam but when you eat these animals privately not in the context of karbonos of sacrifices you're eating them simply in the context of you love a good barbecue however you have to remain careful that you not consume the blood spill out the blood do not drink the blood no access to the blood why? and what do you do? says Pasuk Chavdalad don't eat it al Pour it on the ground, let it run like water. sochlenu, don't eat it. Don't eat it, so that it will be good for you and your children afterwards. Do the proper thing in the eyes of Hashem. So what jumps out at you right away about these Psukim? Something very, very redundant. What jumps out at you about the Psukim? How many times does it say Lo sochlenu? We'll see in a moment from Rashi. Who really wants to drink blood to begin with? But the Torah has to tell me in succession three times. Rak, don't, achol, achol adam ke don't eat the blood. And then loso don't eat al And then loso Okay, I get it. I get it. Don't eat the blood. Why is it telling it to me three times? So you learn from here Rashi tells us three independent prohibitions. You're not allowed to eat the blood. The primary ban is in. Is in, uh, is in Vayikra, is Dama Nafesh. It means that the moment that you the animal and blood spurts out, you're not allowed to uh, eat that blood. Number two, what's called Dama Tamsis, Rashi here says on, on uh, Pasuk Chav Dama Tamsis is after that original blood that spurts out after you shech. It's the blood that seeps out slowly from the incision after it's made. It doesn't gush, it doesn't run, it doesn't spurt, but it's what comes out later. You can't eat that. And number three, to teach that you can't eat the blood even that is absorbed within the limbs of the animal. That too has to be extricated from the animal. How do we do that? By salting the animal. By salting the uh, the flesh of the animal, it draws out the blood. So the three times it says you can't eat is to correspond with the three prohibitions or the three periods of when you can't eat. By the way, this stat, of the thir- first time when you shech, blood spurts out. And that's re- reference to Adam nefesh, blood is the soul. That's why we, when we bury a person, we also bury them with any blood. So when you're doing a Tahara, any blood that you clean up uh, or that is absorbed in a cloth as part of the Tahara, we place that in the coffin with them. We bury that with them. But Yaakov Kamenetsky says that. Strictly speaking, only the blood that comes out at the moment of death is what needs to be buried with them. The Dam Nisa, why? Because the Dam nefesh. that's the original blood. The blood that seeps out later, or the blood that when you're cleaning the body, we, we have the Minag of burying that with the mace. But strictly speaking, it's not necessary. It doesn't have that status of the first blood of the Dam ha nefesh of the Dam ha misa. So anyway, the Torah here tells us three times you can't eat blood. Why do I need to be told three times? Says Rashi, Pasuch of Bimasha that which it tells us so strongly, Atalamacha R- says, What do you learn about the contemporary time? The Jews who are living those who are living contemporaneously to the Jews when the Torah is given, they love blood. Their blood is a delicacy. They're drinking blood like it's a bloody Mary. They're loving it. So therefore the Torah has to R- says, that's why the Torah has to say, Rak chazak, be strong, be diligent, don't drink blood. Rav Ben-Azai who says something that resonates a little better for us. Namely, if the Torah tells us be so vigilant, be so strong, be so careful about something that I have no temptation whatsoever for, all the more so I have to display vigilance and care for that which I am tempted by. If I have to be so careful to avoid that which I have no temptation for, all the more so I have to be careful for that which I am tempted by. Look at the The Yitzhahar is always working overdrive to try to get us to violate what God wants. So, even though I have no temptation for blood, but what happens we have a concept called the forbidden apple what's the principle of the forbidden apple the forbidden fruit the principle of the forbidden fruit is once you make something forbidden it looks more delicious than ever right if I'm allowed to have it I'm not interested in it but if you tell me I can't have it all of a sudden I can't stop thinking about it right that's a very important principle in parenting it's a very important principle in life to be careful what you forbid because you can make, make it a much greater temptation. So, the forbidden fruit principle. So, since the Sisei Chachamim, the has a forbidden fruit principle. If God forbids it, then you crave it. So, even though you have no real desire for blood, but the very fact that it's forbidden creates temptation to it. And nevertheless, you don't desire it. But the Torah tells us be core strong, be vigilant because after all it violates what Hashem wants. So So, that which you're really tempted by, that which you really desire to cut corners on your tax returns and to look and stare and gaze at something or someone you shouldn't be looking at so certainly you have to be vigilant. That's what Rashi interprets Rak Chazak. It's telling us to be quoting the Sefri Rebbe if you have to be vigilant with something you're not tempted by all well, the more so you have to be vigilant by that which you are tempted by ok the Sforno understands it differently says Ravavad lo soch hayashar Hashem mm-hmm. what does the end of the Pasuk say? be vigilant don't drink the blood why? because the blood is the nafesh mm-hmm. and don't eat it it'll be good for you and for your sons after you and hayashar Hashem do what's good in the eyes of God. In the eyes of God. This is so good in the eyes of God. Don't drink blood. This is what God is so worried about, our drinking blood. Says the Sphoronel, Says the Sphoronel. You know why the Torah is saying, When I look at blood and I choose not to drink it, I could choose to avoid it for one of two reasons. I could choose to avoid it because I'm repulsed by it. Or I could choose to avoid it because Hashem says, avoid it. Says the Sforno, when the Pasa concludes, Hayashar b'nei Hashem, do what is just and right in the eyes of Hashem, the Torah is telling us, don't avoid it because you're repulsed by it. Observe it because God tells you not to. It's a mandate of how to live life. And the Sforno here references the Gemara elsewhere. The Gemara says, don't say I don't want to eat pig because I'm repulsed by it. Say, I would love to have pork. You know, I would love to have beef jerky, pork jerky. I'd love to eat that delicious pig's, pig's feet pickled pig's feet they sell in Walmart in that neuron purple color. I would love, it looks delicious. Why am I not having it? Hashem says, I can't have it. That should be our attitude and our perspective. Not th- what regulates our life is our temptation. What regulates our life is what Hashem allows or disallows. And that's Kisa Asai ashar be'ne Hashem says the Svorno. Says the Svorno. What is this concept of ki adam hua nafesh? This concept of adam hua nafesh is very significant. It means the soul can be found. Man, human beings and all of the animal kingdom have multiple layers of souls. We have an animal soul, a nefesh behemes as the tebal refers to overly, over and over again and you have a nefesh elokus. we have a neshama locus. there's a component of us which is not what does an animal soul mean? it's what endows the animal as superior to plant life the plant is alive in the sense that it grows it decays and it dies it's born plant has a certain element of life but it's not animated the plant and a plant doesn't have free will an animal is superior to the plant world in that it has, it's animated. It has, I don't know if it has free will, it could choose which tree to eliminate on, it chooses which food to, to go eat. But an animal has a level of a nefesh. A human being has not just a nefesh, it has a nefesh also, it has the animal impulse and instinct, but above and beyond that, the human being has a neshama. A neshama is an even more superior soul. So, where is the animal soul contained? And what, what is the human soul? The humo- human soul is the conscience. An animal doesn't have a conscience. An animal could damage your property. An animal could not have a, a, um, uh, a relationship that's appropriate, and it doesn't feel guilty. An animal has no self-awareness. The dog doesn't say, do I look good in these jeans? There's no self-awareness in the animal. Because it has only the animal soul. The human being has a consciousness, has a self awareness, has a moral compass. That's the uniquely godly soul. So, where's the animal soul found? In the Nufish. It's found in the blood. That has a very significant um, influence in the conversation, believe it or not, about brain death. About brain death. About brain death. What is the status of brain death? When a person's brain stops functioning, are they halachically dead? And what's the practical consequence if they're halachically dead? Can you take them off life support? Can you harvest their organs for organ donation? What's the halachic status of someone who's determined to be brain dead? How do you define death? Is death defined as the cessation of brainstem activity? Or is death defined as the cessation of spontaneous respiratory and circulatory activity? A uh, a fantastic comprehensive book was recently, very recently published. Rabbi Simi Shabtai, who was visiting our community around the Kola the summer, his brother um, Rabbi Dr. Shabtai wrote a fantastic book, a thick book, on this issue of the definition of death, and whether brain death te- meets that criteria. So part of the discussion is, Hadam hua nefesh. So if you look, in Masechah Ksubus on Dafey Amid tells us their quotes. The Gemara elsewhere, I should say, the Gemara elsewhere says, you're not allowed to be Chavala on Shabbos as a Malacha. If you hurt somebody on Shabbos and draw blood, it's a malacha. What's the malacha? To cut someone, and so on and so forth. This comes into play if somebody takes a shot on Shabbos, an insulin shot or another kind of shot. Are they allowed to? If they need it, obviously for their for their health, it's permissible. But let's say it's not absolutely necessary. So it depends whether you cause bleeding or not. What's the violation? Which malacha is bleeding? So Rashi says the malacha of bleeding is tsoveya, discoloration. You give someone a black and blue mark, it's discoloration. You draw blood, it's discoloration. It's a malacha of soveya. But Rabbeinu Tam here in Ksubas Hayam and Bez writes, So Rabbeinu Tam writes, Rashi's grandson, that when you draw on Shabbos, one of the 39 categories of forbidden labor, a malacha is netilis you're not allowed to take a life can't kill a bug, you can't kill a human being. Killing is a malacha. So if extracting blood is a form of killing. It's part, how do you know extracting blood is a form of killing? From our Ki adam Because where is life contained? In the blood. So when you extract blood, when you cause bleeding, you're taking a portion of life, and therefore that's subsumed in the category of Natiles Nashama, and that's the Malacha on Shabbos. So some say, you see from this puzzle Ki Adamu Anafesh, of quotes this, that if the Adamu Anafesh, where is life found? Not defined only by the brain activity, where is life found? The circulatory system, the blood system. It's only when the heart can no longer spontaneously pump blood on its own. That's death. So even if the brain has ceased functioning, even if the brain as an organ is dead, there's no blood flow activity to it. But the rest of the body continues to have circulatory activity, the blood continues to flow, maybe that's considered to be alive. And since that's a question of suffolk, it's a question of doubt. Rav Shechter's is of the opinion, suffolk chai, suffolk mace. It's, it's a suffolk about, so if you remove that person from life support, if you harvest their organs, it's a suffolk that you've killed them. So we're machmir in a suffolk murder. We don't murder in doubt. So therefore, if Schechter is of the opinion that you're, that brain death is not death, you can't harvest organs. If Tendler quotes or if Moshe Feinstein's of the opinion and many other prominent posts can say, no, brain death is death because the brain is where you define life and based on Mishnayis and Gemara's and Yuma, and questions of what happens when you decapitate, and the great experiment with the sheep, Rav Zaman Orbach Orbach instructed Rabbi Dr. Avram Steinberg to decapitate a pregnant sheep, see if they'll still deliver, it's a whole question, and uh, whether there's still life. So it's, a, it's an interesting discussion, not for now, I just bring to your attention that in this discussion is a reference to our haNafesh, that life force, the animal life, the definition of life can be found in the blood. Says the Torah, Viter. <speaking in Hebrew> what should you do? Hashem. <speaking in Hebrew> so now that you have a license to eat meat privately, not in the context of sacrifice, but whenever you just crave flesh, you're allowed to sacrifice and eat it. So but re- what remains... What remains is the obligation to bring your kodshim and your nadarim, the vow offerings. When you vow an offering, that you still have to bring to the mishkan. That you still have to bring to the Beis HaMiktesh to offer. Says Rashi, If you have to bring a carbon olah, you place the flesh and the blood on the mezbeach to burn. And if it's a karbon shlamim, you pour the blood, you offer the blood of the animal. By the way, that also explains... Why do we have, why do we have z'rikas adam? Why do we sprinkle the blood on the altar as part of the sacrificial process? What significance? It seems very archaic. It seems barbaric. We're sprinkling blood? We're like barbarians. So Rav Shem Shem explains, no, based on our Pasuk. Ki adam hu where blood is the symbol of life. When I sprinkle the blood, I'm symbolically sprinkling, I'm dedicating my life to Hashem. If the blood is symbolic of the life force, and the reverse develops, when I bring a korban, what I'm saying is, God, I have an animal soul inside me. I'm made up of a nefesh and a neshama. And God, when I sacrifice the animal, I am symbolically sacrificing the animal impulse, the animal instinct in me. I'm sacrificing it to you. When I, when I burn its fats, I'm burning its indulgences. When I br- br- when I sprinkle its blood, I'm sprinkling ki anafash, I'm dedicating my very life, and I'm ve- dedicating my life force that which uh, that which I am alive. I dedicate to you. That's the symbolism. So korban First, you de- you sprinkle the blood on the mizbeach, and then you eat the uh, the flesh. Fine, another lemon Okay, continues the Torah. Continues the Torah. Right, you bring your korban olah and you bring the blood to the mizbeach and you sprinkle on the mizbeach. And then you could eat the meat. wa shamata iskaat wa ma sha'a illa sha nokhim Shmor wa Translate for me. What is shmor? Guard. Wa and listen. To all of the things that I am commanding you, why should you guard and listen to all the things I am commanding you? The manitav lach, so it'll be good for you and your sons after you, your progeny forever. Why? tov do that which is right, do that which is just in the eyes of Hashem, your God. What is shmur and what is shamata? It says Rashi, shmur. Zoom Mishnah. Learn, go to Shear, study Mishnah. You have to learn Torah over and over and over to make sure that you don't forget. Place it in your belly. It has to be in your very belly. Learn Torah so it's part of the fabric who you are. I can wake you in the middle of the night and you'll be holding. And if you review, if you review... Then you'll be able to hear its message and then you'll be able to keep it. What does he mean? So, what is shmor V'Shamata? Shmor safeguard means chazara. Learn and learn and learn. Review and review and review. And if you bring that diligence, if you bring that attitude, then vishamata. See, if you learn once, you go to the dafiyayimai, it goes in one ear and out the other ear. You're not going to be able to absorb its message. You're not going to be able to hear what it's saying, says Rashi. But if you guard by reviewing over and over again, then you're going to to get its message and that's why it says shmor vishamata then and then only then can you achieve righteousness can you live its messages and its values it says the Balatun, shmor vishamata ein boor yorechet velo ama art Chassid. the mishnah perikiyagvos in the second parak says that a boor how do you translate a boor a boor a boor is a boor a a um, Undignified person. I don't know how to translate a boor. So a boor, uneducated, undignified, uncouth. A boor. He's a boor. So a boor can't be a yerechait, can't achieve the level of of living in awe, of fear of sin. Vlu'a ma'arat, an uneducated, ignorant person. Can't be a chassid. Can never achieve righteousness. Why? Because you need this information. You need to know the values in order to learn them. So that's the Baal term says. That's Shemur Vishamata. Guard. And if you guard, you're learning. If you're ambitious and you're learning. If you have aspiration and you're learning. And then vishamata Then you'll hear the message and then you're going to grow. What is the message that you're hearing? Says Rashi, what's the koladvarim? Shutei chaviva alacha mitzvah kalik and mitzvah chamura. That even what seems like an insignificant mitzvah should be important and significant to you, like a strict, like a stringent, strong mitzvah. Where did Rashi get this from? Sifsi chachamim says from the addition of one word, kol hadvarim. It could say the pasuk hadvarim. Why does it say kol hadvarim? Shemur v'shemata es could say shemur v'shemata es hadvarim. Guard the things. That God has commanded you. Why does it say, "Guard, call all"? It says the sifsei chachamim. Dim lokein kol lomeli lichto stam advar ma'ilah shanech mitzavcha ve'kulam b'mashma. From the word kol, we learn, even those mitzvahs I would think, I don't have to guard. What are the mitzvahs I would think I don't have to guard? Insignificant mitzvahs, minimal mitzvahs, unimportant mitzvahs. Says the Ramban, what are these kol dvarim? What's the Pasuk's reference to guard all of these dvarim? Lo chukim Normally when the Torah enjoins us, guard all of thee. Mitzvahs, chukim, mishpatim, eidah, and so on and so forth, here it doesn't. The parsha here, the Torah here, is telling us: No, you know what you need to guard. You know what the Torah wants us to guard. Torah is not talking about the mitzvahs that it talked about elsewhere. Guard and listen to the things that are yashar v'atov. What's the concept of Hayashar v'atov? So turn back to a couple weeks ago. Parshas Vezchanan, Perak Vav, Pasuk Ches. In Parak Vav Pasuk Ches, of Pasch, I'm sorry, Perik Vav Pasuk Yud Ches, chapter 6 verse 16 of Sefer it says, don't follow do the righteousness and the good in the eyes of Hashem, the man yitav lach so it'll be good for you. What does it mean hayasher v'atov? What does it mean to live a life of hayasher v'atov? So look at Rashi, hayasher v'atov zup Shara." You know what? You could compromise in life. This is the Torah's mandate to compromise. Even when the din is with you. When according to strict justice, you're right. When you deserve it, you're 100% right, it's coming to you. Nevertheless, says Rashi, what does it mean? The Torah is telling us, God is mandating us? Pursue Shara. Look for compromise. Even though strictly speaking, you shouldn't have to compromise an iota, justice is with you, nevertheless, compromise. That's Asisa Yasher Vatov. And the Ramban there, in Puslok Yidchas and echoes this. What it means is pursue and accept and embrace Psharah. God loves somebody who's straight Do what's correct Be straight Do what's right Can you find a legal loophole That technically it's okay? Yeah, you could find a legal loophole That it's okay Does that mean you should do it? Says the Ramban No even when you have a halachically legal loophole, even when strictly speaking, according to halacha, you can justify what you're doing, ask yourself is it yashar v'tov? Is it right? Is it just? Does God want it? It says the Ramban one of the most important Rambans of the Torah. The Ramban says, Why is this mandate so important? Because God is giving an umbrella mandate. Torah can't mandate every single possibility of life. We you're going to have incidents in life, you're going to have confrontation, conflict, you're going to have challenges in life that will come up with your neighbor, that will come up in business, that will come up in relationships, that will come up in government, that comes up in... You'll have issues that come up all throughout life. And the Torah couldn't anticipate and imagine every single permutation and tell us exactly what to do. So what does the Torah tell us in an umbrella fashion? When things come up and you turn to the Torah and it's not explicitly stated, "What's the thing to do?" And you ask yourself, "What's the right thing to do?" The answer is, do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Vasisa Yashar Vehato. So says the Ramban, when our Pasak tells us, "Guard and listen to Advara Maeela, what are the Advara Maeela? Rashi said the Dvar are all mitzvos Even the insignificant mitzvos Like the strict mitzvos The Ramban disagrees with Rashi The Dvar When it's referring to guard and keep and listen to these things It's not talking about mitzvos It's talking about that which the Torah didn't explicitly say And you ask yourself What's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? Rav HaNuchazin has an article Is there an ethic outside of halacha? Does halacha? determine ethics? Or is there an ethics that even if something's okay halachically, it's still unethical? Or even if halacha tells you it's also doesn't mean it's unethical. Is there an ethic independent of halacha? I'm going to speak about this, I think, this Shabbos afternoon, the whole incident that happened this week with El Al. I'm sure you heard. A third party distributor of El Al tickets online. There was a glitch in the system and El Al sold tickets for a third of the normal price, $350 round trip to, to Israel. 5,000, what happened was, somebody saw this, and it made its way onto the blogs, and rapidly, and ultimately 5,000 people, bought tickets for $350 round trip to Israel, because, you know, Orbitz or Kayak, or one of these third party distributors, there was a glitch in the system, and it sold the tickets for a third of the normal price. So El Al took a few days, and El Al came out with a statement, that they're going to honor the tickets. But the Shiloh came up, just because Elal is going to honor the ticket isn't the right thing. If you bought that ticket and you learned afterwards that it wasn't a great sale, but it was a mistake, is that a mekach Is it onaah? Are you taking advantage of Elal if you keep the ticket? Or do you have to say, so that's, I think I'm going to give shir about it this Shabbos afternoon, a little halachic analysis, should you have to give the ticket back. But part of the discussion will be this pasuk. Asisa sisa If even within halacha you can justify keeping it, is it the right thing to do? Stay tuned for Shabbos because you could <laughs> you could argue you could argue both sides. Yeah, Ayashra Matov, there's nothing wrong even within Ayashir b'atob. But with everything we do, we have two questions to ask ourselves, says the Rabban. Shmur vishamata guard and listen is telling us that there are two things we have to do with every action we're about to take. Is it consistent with Halacha? And is it the right thing to do? And just because the answer to number one is yes, it's consistent with halacha, doesn't mean the answer to number two is, is yes, that it's the right thing to do. And if the answer to number two is no, even if the answer to number one is yes, I shouldn't do it. That's the What uh, if it's, it's a that the places the wrong price and something is far more expensive so low price on. So we'll see that halacha Right after, you go into a store and they advertise something as being much cheaper than what it really is. It was their mistake. Do you hold them to it? What if it, they correct the mistake before there's a transaction, you didn't actually buy it yet? Is it only if you bought it that the mistake doesn't matter? Stay tuned Shabbos afternoon. <laughs> the Orachayim... <laughs> what? Well, we'll, we'll get to it. The Orachayim <laughs> HaKadosh says here a very good question. Nobody asked. Kasha, hayal sh'ma It should have said, listen and guard. How could you guard something if you haven't listened, if you don't know yet? It should have said, listen and guard. V'loomah hiktam sh'mir Odh ma riba b'tevas s b'tevas kol. Why didn't it say shmor b'shamata kol advar ma'ele? Sorry, shmor b'shamata hadvar ma'ele. That's what it should have said. Vohod l'malo amar hatavas habanim elav b'pasuk zeh. And why here specifically are we making this promise of goodness to your children, to your progeny? Otsar chledas omlo kitasat kitasat tov shenir shem b'losayis tam l'maymar l'man yitav v'lo kvarkadam amar shmor. Also, it says l'man yitav l'cha. So that will be good for you. But we already gave the reason. Sh'mor Shamata. What's going on here? Asked the Orachayim. We're commanded two things. Echad Torah un-mitzvot. Hashem asher krono del Yisroel mi pi Moshe. Number one, it's a reminder to observe and to keep and to safeguard the mitzvot that Moshe has given us. Ubeiz asher yigzuru raboseinu agdaram vasiagam asher yichad shehu. Lezek kinege Torah un and kvar v Torah asher emor shmur. U kinege dvar meschad shemei amar vishamat. Listen to what the Orachayim says. There are two levels of embracing Torah. There's the Torah Shabbat, there's what Moshe gave us of Torah, and then there's the safeguards and the fences that our rabbis gave. Our rabbis created Siagla Torah. Our rabbis created, created Rabbinic Law. So Shmor means guard the Torah that Moshe gave. V'shamata. And says Moshe, listen listen carefully when the Chachamim will come and perform and place safeguards and fences around those Torah laws. Vishamata, listen to what they have to say. Shmor V'shamata says the Orochai Makadosh corresponds with two types of law Torah law and rabbinic law. kol. es kol, And that's why it says es kol, all. All means. Even the ones that are going to be introduced by the rabbis later. And the Rambam and the continues, and that's what it means. What motivates? Why did the Chachamim establish this siag? Why did they draw this fence? because they're trying to do what's good in the eyes of Hashem. It's not a power play by the Chachamim. It's not the Chachamim are introducing it for any self-serving purpose. Rather, the whole reason that they're doing it is, yashar, there's a long he elaborates and he applies what all this means in this context he reinterprets the Pesach to talk about two parallel tracks observe and safeguard Torah law and observe and safeguard what will be introduced later by the rabbis so we saw three things today we talked about the permissibility, the license to eat meat, even not in the context of slaughtering. We talked about the significance of Adamu and anafesh, the idea of the blood, the life force is found in the blood. And thirdly, we talked about the idea of um, safeguard and keep the mitzvos. What's the mitzvos? What does it mean to listen and safeguard? And so on and so forth. Have a fantastic week.